Psychological meaning. We're gonna dive deep into your inner world, so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. In Nico Kazanaki's book, The Last Temptation of Christ, Jesus laments, Never in my life have I feared death as much as I feared the resurrection. You and me both, dude. I wasn't allowed banned books growing up, which is probably not surprising to you. It wasn't so much that they were forbidden as they were hidden away by the pious milk toast who ruled the roost. They tried to turn me into a daughter of fear, but they didn't know. I was a prophet in disguise, hopeful in their despair and despairing in their hope. They never tried to hide Jesus from me. He remained a mystery nonetheless. He's always been a conundrum, an archetype in my life. He has had countless faces, changing in stature and expression every time I turn to look at him again. They told me he was our hero. I've never been able to quite shake the feeling of him being my enemy. In our eighth episode of the season, The Hero, we're pleading with the angels above and the demons below, may the Lord preserve us from sainthood and offer to forge our wings instead which in non-poetic speak means we're examining where we feel and long to be heroic, and perhaps how that might mask the enemy within. I walked down the aisle, slowly, with deliberation and a bit of trepidation. I wore a dress that felt like a gown, and this felt like the most important walk I'd ever make. The piano played softly, and it felt like all eyes were on me. Even though all heads were bowed, all eyes were closed, except for the pastor's eyes, as he watched me walk the aisle. His eyes didn't matter. Or... Maybe they did, because I can still feel the gaze of religious men making the back of my neck itch with unease. I came to the altar, which was really just an elevated stage that was carpeted in this, like, shaggy red carpet. It was soft, and it smelled old. And I knelt, intent on asking Jesus into my heart, and really making it stick this time. He had been slippery the times before. You see, I had tried before but I couldn't remember the date. It's a story I'll tell you on a different day about pennies in the heart room I built for Jesus that also, incidentally, had shag carpeting. But when you give your heart and soul to Jesus to let him wash you in the blood, it seemed vital to remember the date. This was the time that I wrote it down, 
in my Bible that I could not yet read, but was covered in this light green Bible cover with a pocket in front where I kept pictures of my drawings. It's April 11th, 1993. I'm seven. I just signed away my life to the man I had never met, but had only heard about through the grapevine, like the raisins who sang soul songs and commercials in between episodes of Muppet Babies. I asked him into my heart. I was prepared to let him have total control. Coercion was as familiar as ketchup on everything. We haven't talked much about Jesus, you and I. Maybe it's because I haven't wanted to frighten you off. Jesus frightens loads of people off. He's strange. And the relationship I was taught to have with him is stranger still. This relationship is a spiritually incestuous one. He was an older brother, meant to be idolized and imitated. But also somehow he and God the Father were one, so he's also a parent, ready to condemn you. Potentially with some soothing after wrapping you in his embrace like a mother hen. But also it didn't stop there, he was also the bridegroom of the church, of which I was a part. And so by walking down that aisle, I became a child bride. And in retrospect, I'm not entirely sure what the consummation would have looked like. Spirituality and sex so rarely go together. Except, that's not really true. Spirituality often has sex as a way to sell. And the people I grew up with knew, consciously or unconsciously, that sex really does sell. And so there was always something erotic built into the evangelical rites of passage. And with that, sacred sexuality was shame. Years later, I would learn to wear a purity ring to protect myself from my own desire and from the desire of others. Brother, father, husband, Freud would have had a lot to say about my spiritual upbringing. But thankfully for you and I, he's dead and gone. Much like Jesus was maybe is. Unless, of course, you believe in the resurrection, which isn't just another podcast episode, but probably a whole other season, or two semesters in grad school, or five years in a PhD program so you can uh, analyze just one little piece of him. But here's where we're going to go off script, sort of, kind of, maybe. We want to tell you about Jesus. For those of you who haven't ever really encountered him beyond the evangelical scheme of this multi-level marketer, and he's the granddaddy of them all, I, I want to tell you about the hero I was taught to worship long before I was born. Some people had Chopin for babies. I got sermons for fetuses. So it all began, for Jesus and for me, with the promise of being born. Jesus had long been promised. God had been weaving that into what Christians call the Old Testament. That a Messiah would come, that a Messiah would be this, and a Messiah would be that. I can't quote all the scripture to you, but you could go and Google it if you really wanted. But eventually, God, I don't know, maybe he got sick of waiting for a Messiah to emerge on his own. And so he decided to impregnate Mary without her consent, which I'm pretty sure we call rape in modern times, but you can make of it what you will. The scholars tell us, and really the Bible in many ways alludes to how young Mary really was. 12, 13, just just past the age of being able to become impregnated. And so God rapes her, or uh, 
conceives within her the virgin birth. And and there is this baby, this baby who will be born of a virgin, which incidentally has always seemed strange to me, to imagine that the gods would care so much about virginity. It's such a primal masculinity. It's this urge to want your seed to continue. The desire thus to avoid death. It's odd that it would show up in one who is immortal. Why would God care whose sperm it was? Why would God care that there was no no sin in this person? Why does it matter? Because I don't know how you can live this life and remain untainted. But that's for the theologians, not for me. I abandoned that route long ago. So Jesus was long promised, and his mother carried him on her own. For me, my story, my birth, was not long promised. I don't actually know very many stories about what it was like for my parents to imagine having children. The only real story I have of my birth and thus conception is about how my mother didn't have enough potassium, and she fainted on her way from the apartment to go somewhere, and that her OBGYN was an asshole. And when it came time for me finally to be born into this world, I was stubborn. And that asshole OBGYN's nurse, who also sounded like uh, not a great person, she leaned on my mother's stomach. Surely that's just folklore. Maybe not even factually true, but I really like the idea that I was stubborn and I did not want to leave the land of undifferentiated consciousness. I wanted to stay where it was warm and safe, where I was connected. Somehow I knew in the womb that that would be better than this land of trying to make sense of every which thing, this land of having an ego and not just a self. But like I said, that's just folklore. Who knows really what was going on for me? And I did not have a divine father. My dad is very, very human. But infancy. Infancy comes next. You're promised to be born, and then you're born. And for Jesus, he was cherished. It feels clear in the stories we have. He's loved by a father, Joseph, who far outshone God at least as far as I'm concerned. Joseph loved this child he bore no biological relation to, and surely he must have thought that Mary, I don't know, perhaps had been raped, or I guess maybe chose to have sex with another man. He chose to raise this child as his own. He chose to claim him. And he knew, body and soul, that this was his son. That might all be fantasy and projection, though, Because maybe, I don't know, maybe Joseph was a shitty parent. Not tons to go on in the biblical text and the extra-canonical text. But the story I like to tell myself is Joseph was a kind person. He was quiet. He was a contemplator of deep things. He was spiritual. He was like water. He flowed with what happened in life. And Mary, Mary was fire. 
She has this song in the book of Luke that pulls from all of these prophetic traditions. And the most famous line, at least to me, is she talks about tumbling down the status quo, ripping down the powers that be so the meek might inherit the earth, that God would reward the humble. Mary's fierce. She's a prophet in disguise, and she certainly was no daughter of fear. And she not only was ready to topple the powers that be, she claimed a promise from God, like Hagar before her. Infancy is famous for Jesus. We celebrate his birth, although, incidentally, the scholars do tell us that he was born in March, or somewhere after the spring equinox, or I guess just before, that he was born when things were coming to life, not in the dead of winter. But that didn't really work for the Roman Empire, so uh, Christmas is in December. For me, my own infancy is a mystery to me. I, too, was born in March, on the cusp of spring on winter's death day, right on the edge of the spring equinox. An astrological natal chart that I consulted as I was writing the script, which was on the internet, which also probably means it's not super, super reliable, that astrological natal chart tells me that I resist everyday things. And whether or not that's truly true, I want to claim it as true and thus make it true. And really, the pile of dishes in my sink attests to that. And I wonder sometimes what it would be like to know myself as an infant. The way I can imagine knowing myself at three, or at seven, or thirteen, or twenty-eight. The years before three are a mystery. There were no wise men watching the stars to make sense of me. There were no people who journeyed far away to meet me. I was just a baby. No one really important. We don't stay a baby long, though. For those of you who are parents, you know that. They change magically day by day by day until they go from just being this little blob that, of course, you love with all of your heart to this person who grows and grows, not only physically, not only emotionally, but in that ineffable something that makes a human a human. Jesus, he had what seemed to be a fairly fun childhood. We don't actually get a ton of it from, I keep saying canonical, but it means, you know, the shit that we put in the Bible and all agreed. And by all, I mean a bunch of guys like multiple centuries ago agreed that we should keep in the Bible. So there's not a lot in the canonical text about what Jesus was like as a kid. There is, however, this really delightful demonic set of stories in Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And I think it's been a while since I've read the Quran, or I guess I never know how to say this, you all. The Quran is really only the Quran in Arabic, and I do not read Arabic. I could barely read any Hebrew, and I'll tell you someday how I broke up with my Hebrew professor. Not literally, but just leaving the class. Whew, I'm dangling all my participles today and my metaphors. But so I've read a translation of the Quran, and it's, but it's been a while, so I don't remember how many Jesus as a kid stories there are in there. But back to Infancy Gospel of Thomas. There are these really fun, famous stories about him breathing life into clay birds. 
which I do think shows up in other places, including the Quran. But that is pretty mild compared to the other stories in that extra canonical, maybe heretical gospel. Because really, you should go and read it, but mostly Jesus murders a bunch of other kids. And mostly he murders them because they've annoyed him. He's like this bad seed that somehow comes good and becomes, you know, the savior of the world. He's in this book, a master at breaking things down, at destroying the status quo, and he has very little regard for others. I was not a child murderer. However, there is a story my mother likes to tell about how when I was small, I would sleep like a little corpse, my hands folded neatly over my chest, my eyes wide open, and I would scare the shit out of her. She told me it was very creepy. And then years later, I became a sleepwalker. I don't think I still sleepwalk. My husband hasn't told me if I do or don't, but I'm assuming I don't. And there was this time where I lumbered out of bed. We were staying at a and b in Amish country in Pennsylvania. And I, I wandered around like a zombie. And I somehow ended up outside the door of my room in the B&B. And all the doors were locked. And no one knows how I got out. So all the doors remained locked. Maybe somehow I could pass through walls. I was asleep, though, so I don't know. Jesus didn't stop with his casual murders, though, and the blinding of his accusers, although that is not recorded. So maybe he was still a serial killer in adolescence and adulthood, I don't know. But if we move back into the canonical recording of him, we come to one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels, where we discover his brilliance at the age of 12. He, he and his parents go, I think it's for the Passover, and his parents get some animals to sacrifice at the temple, and the line in the Bible says, Jesus lingered in the temple. He lingered in the place of worship, and his parents didn't know where he was, and he had younger siblings at that point, and I'm sure it was a big extended family affair. There were so many people that nobody missed that Jesus was gone. And when Mary and Joseph finally found him, they were shocked that he was surrounded by all of these learned men, impressing them, impressing the most educated and the most wise with his knowledge and unique interpretation of scripture. They pondered and celebrated his insight. As for me, though, I was no messiah in disguise, and no one much cared for what I had to say. Or maybe it's not that they didn't care, it's that they cared too much. What I offered seemed dangerous, so I learned very quickly to shut the fuck up. And maybe, maybe that's why I'm creating this podcast, as a way to explain to you what I learned while I kept my mouth shut. To explain to you that not only are we surrounded constantly in 2020 and in all the beautiful, bright ages and years and days and times, we're always surrounded by the signs of the apocalypse. But maybe, maybe I'm also wanting to uncover, uncover my own complicity and how I helped bring about the apocalypse, how I continue to bring it about, even once we're past COVID, even once we're past Trump, that I 
in the co-creator in the apocalyptic night of the soul, that I have brought it about with my silence and fear. And maybe it feels like the only way that I can start to untangle is if I linger in my own temple, my own temple of self, of inner knowledge, of spirituality. But we don't stop in adolescence. We never do. Although sometimes when you're there, it feels like it will never end. To be a teenager, to be swamped with hormones is sometimes a fate worse than death. Uh, It's easy to romanticize that time. And yet, it was pretty miserable. I think it was miserable for all of us in different ways. But there were benefits and ways that we over time, would gloss it over. There's so much melancholy, so much drama, so much longing. It's hard to be 12 through 19. But we became adults, both me and Jesus. And we plotted away through our teens and then in our 20s with adventures you probably don't care much to hear about. And then I got walking pneumonia and a degree in divinity, and he got 12 disciples and a death sentence. But before that death sentence and before my pneumonia, we both explored what it meant to be in ministry. I thought I wanted to be a minister, but that was before I dabbled in ministry. Ministry is just so complicated in ways that I I don't know that we really adequately have time to explore it. And I think what felt most complicated to me was how they wanted me to be me, but not to be me. They wanted me to be who they projected and longed for. They they wanted what I represented, whether it was a female minister in a church that had only ever hired men, or a babysitter for their teenagers, or sometimes a poet, a poet who could spin a story in a way that they had never thought of before. That always felt good. I'd like sermon making, just like I like podcasting now. Although I do like that I get to swear more in podcasting than I ever did in sermonizing. And yet, I I spent less than the three and a half years that Jesus spent in ministry. I read this statistic once that youth ministers last on average 18 months. I made it 19 months. I've always been a substandard overachiever, though. In ministry, it turned out it wasn't for me, which really pissed me off because I grew up being told that ministry wasn't for me. And it, it wasn't for me in different ways than I had been told it would not be for me. And yet I really, really wanted to be successful in it. As in some, not just as in some ways, really in the core way, as a fuck you to my childhood faith. I don't know that Jesus became what he became, though, as a fuck you to his childhood. Maybe. Jesus, I just have to imagine through his 20s and then into his 30s, he was busy. Busy with ministry, busy thinking, busy being introspective and coming up with all these Zen Cohen's that we call parables. And he was flitting in and out of the desert. There was a temptation with the devil and then the nagging of the Pharisees. And not to mention that incident 
where he had a whip in the temple and chased out the merchants. To tell you about this period would take at least two semesters in grad school. And even then, we'd only scratch the surface. What I like about Jesus, when I'm in a generous mood, is it feels like he took the elements of all of his parents. Mary's fiery passion, Joseph's calm grounding, and the divine's breath of authority. And he combined them all with his own elemental flexibility. Like Mary, he knew how to tell a story that would shake you to your core. And like Joseph, he learned how to craft a metaphor that would haunt you for decades, centuries, millennia. And from his divine father, he learned how to look you straight in the eye and tell you the truth that you're desperate to avoid. But children are meant to go beyond their parents, and in his death, he became wholly unique, even while becoming universally relevant. He became like ether, that fifth element, air breathed by the gods, clear, fresh, pure essence. And if you breathed it in, it would incinerate you, burning away who you thought yourself to be, leaving behind only the real. Needless to say, he was much more successful at ministry than me. I really feel silly admitting this to you, but I worried when I turned 33 that I had six months on the outside. I didn't breathe easy until the number changed to 34. It seemed impossible that I could live longer than him. And it it seems strange to be in this kind of afterlife, where I don't have him to pattern myself on anymore. And not just pattern, but contrast myself against. Death is a mystery, ideally one far in the future. And I imagine it like I imagine infancy, in that I cannot imagine it. I think... I believe that I will only be able to live through it, someday fading into unconsciousness, much as I woke slowly to life. I don't know how Jesus felt about death. I don't know how he would describe it. He didn't have much to say after he came back from the dead, after he left the tomb. He did eat. He did let Thomas touch his wounds. He didn't say very much. And although we record his final words and we make a great fuss about them in a variety of traditions, it's probably not surprising to you I'm not much of a traditionalist. I've always actually liked Norman Mailer's take in his novel, The Gospel According to the Sun. In it, he has Jesus have this final thought. Jesus says, or I think probably thinks. My last thought was of the faces of the poor and how they were beautiful to me. And I hoped it would be true, as all my followers would begin to say, that I had died for them on the cross. The question, though, remains, what does it mean to be a hero, particularly in light of this hero of heroes, the one that I was taught would save me from everything. And who, in many ways, became tied with the hell that was in my soul, and is there still. 
what does it mean to be a hero? I think, I think the way we talk about being a hero in this day and age is the one that comes in seemingly at the last moment, the one who stands in front of you, who has the power, the talent, and I guess in the case of Tony Stark, all the toys that can enable them to destroy the enemy. And if not destroy, then arrest or capture or restrain to outwit. The hero comes in and saves you from the thing you feared the most. And often it is the kind of annihilation, whether it's from being murdered or from something worse than that. I don't know, though, if that's really what a hero is. It seems to me like a hero in many ways is the amplification of who we long to be, of what we wish would happen, of how quickly an issue, a conflict, uh, a hatred could be resolved and worked through. A hero swoops in. They don't walk slowly and surely with us side by side. The hero of my childhood only exists in these books, in these ancient texts. I don't know if he's real. Um, he's an interesting character. I don't need that kind of hero. The hero I need is the hero who sits day by day with me, who ponders, who reflects, who soothes and who challenges, who's just there. I guess that brings us to the question, though, who was Jesus, not just to the historians or theologians, and certainly not to the evangelicals. But who is Jesus to me? Who is this person who I invited into my depths long ago? And who, to be honest, I'm not totally sure if he's there or not. I built him a home, because where else would he live? I think, for me, Jesus is a contrast. Jesus is the one that I think about when I think about what it means to be not just human but divine, when I wrestle with the polarities within myself. I think of Jesus, but not just Jesus. I think of Buddha sometimes. I think of Harry Potter. Oh, I don't really think of a lot of women. I should probably work on that. I think of Jesus as both my opposite and the same. And I, I feel rage at the privileges it seems like he got. Perhaps not the actual authentic historical Jesus, but the one who was crafted in my childhood through my adolescence and even in most of my academic training thus far. Jesus, to me, is not just a benchmark but the framework of who I ought to be and who I do not want to be. He's a mystery. And he's a mystery that is even more compounded because I don't even know if I believe in him or not anymore, which is a complicated thing in and of itself. 
But I do know that the space that he has inhabited, the the mind space he has taken up, is what it means to be human and divine. What it means to be not just the hero, but the one betrayed. I think in the end, I have to let some part of him die. And it's always confusing about which part do you let die and which do you choose to resurrect? Which do you choose to transform? And do you continue to call yourself a little Christ, which is what Christian means? Or do you decide to be something else entirely, to be yourself? Apocalypse is always promising to dismantle so many parts of me, of you, of us. And I can never quite get past, do I dismantle my faith so I can rebuild it? Do I dismantle my faith so I can leave it? And actually, can you ever dismantle faith? Or is it something that just lives inside? Because you've given away the choice long ago. Maybe the choice was never a choice. Maybe it was implanted in you, like the seed was implanted in Mary. Maybe somehow faith is like the virgin birth. Unchosen, but celebrated. Unexplainable, but accepted. I don't know. I was never really a New Testament scholar. And I had aspirations once of being a theologian, but it seems like to be a theologian, you really should believe in God. And really, I only believe in God every other day. Which is an improvement. Or maybe a regression. Who knows? I've been listening to Taylor Swift quite a bit lately, and I love the line, I can't remember, oh, from the song Hoax, and she says, you knew the hero died, so what's the movie for? (sighs) To which I want to respond with her own lyrics, darling, this was just as hard as when they pulled me apart. And I don't know actually how to make that make sense to you, except it makes sense in my heart. So I offer it to you as my own parable, my own Cohen that I, of course, stole from Taylor. I hope that you'll join me next week as we explore the enemy that sits within me, side by side with the hero. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As J.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, 
totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.